right field, Tarasco. Going back to the track. To the wall. And what happens here? He, he contends that a fan reaches up and touches it. But Richie Garcia says no. It's Remember That Guy, the sports podcast where they mine their memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Hey there, folks. It's me, James. I am your co-host, Diaz. So great to have all of you with us listening once again. And what a get that we got today. We actually do have Jeffrey Meyer here to talk about his involvement in that infamous play. No, wait a second. Jeffrey oh, it's a different is... Yankees fan. God damn it, it's, we got Jeffrey, the wrong Yankees fan. Jeffrey has been ejected as he should have been for his fan interference all those years ago. So, you know, Jeffrey is our second favorite Yankees fan. We have a favorite Yankees fan. Please introduce yourself, sir. That's right, it's me. The very special guest, Xavier, who is also a Yankees fan, who, despite being a Yankees fan, will say that Derek Jeter was definitely overrated on that MLB Top 100 that ESPN put out this week. Because there's no way in hell that Jeter should be higher ranked than Albert Pujols or like half the list underneath it. Barry Bonds was eighth. Like, what the fuck are we doing here, folks? Babe Ruth was number one, though, because all Yankees get overrated on these lists. So it's just... No, no, no. That's not overrating. That is very appropriately rating. Because here's the thing. I was seeing some of the discourse online about why Babe Ruth is not the greatest player of all time. Like, oh, you know, the same things that you'll say about... Michael Jordan, the competition was so bad, playing against plumbers and whatever the fuck. If it was only Babe Ruth's batting accolades that we had to hang our hat on, then sure, I would entertain all of those arguments. The motherfucker was also one of the greatest pitchers of his time. We, we, we all remark at how incredible of a season Shohei Otani just had, and he did. And it was one of the greatest seasons we've ever been able to see in our baseball watching lives, if not the greatest one we've ever seen. The Babe did that year in, year out. To Shohei Otani's credit, Babe Ruth did not at any point put up a season with a combined as high OPS plus an ERA plus as Shohei Otani. Shohei Otani's season was better than Babe Ruth ever did. Babe Ruth did it multiple times, and Shohei Otani has not yet done it multiple times. One thing that makes me laugh the most, after they put the list out, they then had a baseball writers roundtable on ESPN, you know, debating the list, and they said, whose spots are too high? And this is how the list goes. Buster only at first. Abe Ruth, too high. Doolittle, second. Derek Jeter, too high. Keown, third. Mickey Mantle, too high. Passon, fourth. Mariano Rivera, too high. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme. It's, uh, it, it, it's interesting how they put this list together, and then every writer they had complains about it. It's, it's an aggregate thing, right? So it's the average opinions, but plenty of dissent within those averages. Yeah, they said more than 20,000 votes were cast from representatives across all of ESPN's MLB platforms. I, for for years, was like indisputably Babe Ruth's the greatest baseball player ever. I've come around on arguments against it. You, you can still definitely, I think, make that claim. We got to stop calling him the greatest athlete ever. He was a portly fellow, and that one we need to be very clear about. He would yeah. get dusted by anybody nowadays. Context is important. Context is why Ben Roethlisberger is not a Hall of Famer. But... Um, context is, is important in Babe Ruth's context as well. But enough about that. Let's let's not get mad about baseball writers telling us what we should be feeling and what we should be remembering. Let's let's focus on what we ourselves are remembering our own. Who's who's making memories for you guys this week? So for me, we are gonna slightly break from the promised Joel Embiid segment that is every time that I speak on who's making memories for me. We're gonna pivot just very slightly down to number zero in your program, but number one in your heart. Tyrese Maxey with, dare I say, a signature performance 
a coming out on a national stage performance on Monday against the Grizzlies, going shot for shot with Ja Morant, who is a bona fide MVP candidate this season, and capping it off with a breakaway layup to push the Sixers' lead from one to three at the buzzer of overtime, and just immediately continuing to run into the crowd and celebrate with the crowd. And the vibes I got from it were pure Allen Iverson. The way that Iverson always went to the crowd to celebrate, the love that Philadelphia universally had for Iverson, I haven't seen anything like that until Tyrese really icing that game. An incredible performance. Again, going shot for shot with an MVP candidate. What I will say, as we record this on Thursday, by the time this is released, who knows, there might be a major shakeup on the Sixers. If the Sixers do make a trade, as is rumored, with a Ben Simmons package to acquire James Harden, Tyrese Maxey cannot be included in this package. He is untouchable. If the Nets say that they need Tyrese Maxey, then I say that we don't need James Harden. That is, that <laughs> I is where I draw Honestly, the line. I agree because, look, part of it is a financial thing. You're going to pay Tyrese Maxey a lot less over the next 10 years than you're going to pay James Harden. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the age thing is also a consideration, right? Because you need to worry about Harden is 33, Maxey is 21. So, and obviously, Harden is a better player than Maxey right now. He will be next season. He probably will still be a better player than him two seasons from now. But after that, Maxi, if Maxi keeps improving on this trajectory that he's on, you need somebody to assume the primary ball handler, creator responsibility from Harden if that trade does happen. And also just the, I mean, the idea of Maxi going to the Nets and torturing the Sixers forever, like that just can't happen. We can't have that. So anybody else, literally everybody else, if they were like, hey, let's forget about the salary cap rules. We want your entire roster besides Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey, and we want all your picks for Harden. I would say, cool. We'll call up the Bluecoats, and with Embiid, Maxey, and Harden, in that order, in terms of stardom and the amount that I love them, we will win it all. I just need Maxey to grow a beard. You need, you need, you need <laughs> at least, least a middling beard for Maxey. Joel and then Harden, Maxey's going to need a little something. That would be a fun sign of unity if he grew like a little Sidney Crosby beard. He's trying his best, but, you know, <laughs> he's, still, he's still a young boy. You know what I really love in the NHL playoffs is the, the Scandinavian guys who at first look like they have no beard whatsoever because it's so blonde, and then just one day, all of a sudden, they are Vikings. Comes in very lightly, but very thickly. Gabriel Landeskog is an excellent example of this right now. Gabriel Landeskog, anytime the Avs make a run past the first round, just one day looks like he is going to uh, pillage and burn your town. And you know what? The Avalanche this year might come and pillage and burn your town. Gotta look out for anybody from those Nordic countries, because they do seem very sweet and very nice, but we can't forget the Vikings were the original pillagers. Well, on that note, we got Tyrese Maxey for Diaz. Xavier... I don't mean to, to force your hand, but we can take a moment if you want to talk about uh, any Scandinavian hockey-related things right now. I'll avoid hockey for now. Um, wow. You're not, okay, as, then I'll tip my cap to Henrik Lundqvist. Let's go say, on record as saying that him. I was the one that tipped the cap to yes. Henrik Lundqvist and not I, I love him, and I watched the tribute video at least three times today. But I've been bringing the Rangers so much, I didn't want to say anything else. I do, I do love him. I, I did watch multiple Rangers games in full on YouTube earlier today during work. I did that. I can I can admit that. I was gonna just keep that keep that close to my chest. Keep that in my no, heart. No, 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 Xavier. There's nothing to be ashamed of. I am very shamelessly 
picking each making memories to speak about the Sixers. So I would say if the Rangers keep making memories for you, you would not be doing us justice. If you tried to be like, ah, oh, well, there's this other thing that I don't care about as much. Like, let's lean in. And folks, he has a Rangers hat on. As you have a this. Rangers hat on. Uh, and he's trying to act like, oh, I don't want to dive in too much on the ring. Dive in. Dive well, in. So it's great. You know, we, we, we got to retire Hank's jersey, his number, his number 30. Uh, unfortunately, lost on a goal, getting overturned with one second left in that game. The right call, but also they would have scored without the thing that they called the, the infringement on, which sucks. So that was, a, that, that was a tough one to lose. Technically, it was the right call, though. Yes, technically it was the right call. That's what we call uh, a teaser, folks. Stay tuned. But they did beat the the Panthers, uh, top of the league Panthers, five to two to go into the All Star break, which is great. But what I really wanted to talk about, and this could be good or bad memories, was the USA forcing Honduran players to play in four degree weather with a negative eleven wind chill up in Minneapolis, or, or actually I think it was in St. Paul in the Twin Cities uh, for an important World Cup qualifier. U.S. won. Did, did anyone three die in that? Two Hondurans were allegedly treated for hypothermia, including their goalkeeper, who was subbed off at halftime. God, I hadn't thought about the fact that goalkeepers don't get to move that whole game. They yeah, don't even so, get, like, the warmth of getting around. So the Honduran goalkeeper did have to move a lot because the U.S. dominated the game. I think the overall XG was 2 2.005 because Honduras had, like, one shot that was from very far out and not even close. But the U.S. goalkeeper, Matt Turner, had to run over to the sideline sometimes to get covered in a giant heating blanket because he wasn't doing anything and could have frozen to death. Again, USA won 3-0. It's a really big step towards qualification. With only three games left now, they have a four-point gap uh, to fourth uh, over Panama. And they host Panama at home in the second game of the last window, which win that almost certainly in. But it was unnecessary. No, like I don't want to give any offense to Honduras because Honduras is, has been a very good team in the past. This time they're very bad. They're by far the worst team in the final round of qualifying. They'd already been eliminated. They're not any good. And the U.S. could have beaten them anywhere, but instead chose a place that could actually seriously endanger the health and did seriously endanger the health of people. The fact that the U.S. won should not detract from the fact that it was a stupid and dangerous decision, and I really hope they don't do it again. I would think there's lessons learned. The one thing I will say, like Minnesota's been getting a lot of shit in relation to this. That was an outstanding crowd in terms of support. They were... Yeah, I mean, the, the Minnesota no, no, yeah, crowd no. knows how to handle that temperature in sports. Well, nothing sports. against it's the Lions the field. That nothing against Minnesota fans. This is all Greg Ber Berhalter, because we know that it was 100% his decision. Him talking shit about how, oh, when we have to go to Central America, we have to play in 95-degree heat and 90-dew point and everything, which is true. And some, t uh, But again, these countries, there's very little they can do about that other than put games later on at night. And to be fair, some of them, Honduras included, have played games in the middle of the afternoon to, to, to try to screw with American players before who aren't used to it. But it's, I don't think it's the same. Like, the, you, yeah, expect, like you expect teams with lesser talent levels to try to maximize home field advantage. If you can beat the team anyway on just, like, easily on an on a, on a even, 
you know, playing field, just do it without endangering people. It's not, it's not necessary. I think what bothers me is like 95 degrees with 92 point like that exists in america it's an unpleasant temperature but that exists in this country minnesota weather does not exist anywhere in honduras that is not something that they can have any kind of preparation for if we know we're gonna play a game there you, you can go to florida and train you can get that temperature and and prepare yourself for it honduras is not getting practice in minnesota weather I mean, they could set up a training facility in an ice box if they really wanted to win. I, mean, <laughs> but I guess, I guess they just don't want it enough. That's really what it comes down to. What can I say against <laughs> that? Excellent point. What about you, James? Oops. Yeah. So I mean, like, there's been a lot of very awful stuff this week in sports between Major League Baseball owners just genuinely not really caring that much about the sport of baseball. Brian Flores revealing. Things that we already knew about hiring practices in the NFL, but certainly making it more apparent. There was something last Sunday after the super fun Bengals win over the Chiefs. It's weird a little bit cheering on a divisional rival, and I have to say I'm probably going for the Rams in the Super Bowl, but it was very fun to watch the Bengals win that game. There, there's a poet that I really like. Poet, writer, sports fan, uh, Hanif Abdurraqib. You can find him on Twitter at Neef Muhammad with two M's in the middle there. He's been on a lot of great sports podcasts. He's very poetic in talking about sports, as one would expect from a poet. He's from Columbus, Ohio originally. And he had a tweet, and this tweet just really lingered with me following that game and really kind of, I think, helped remind me why it is that we all sit through so much losing and so many things that ultimately do not end in our favor. Uh, And I'm just going to read that tweet now. Haven't worn this old vintage Bengals jacket since maybe 2018, and I had to go deep in the closet to find it, and it is also a bit too large for me these days, but I will maybe wear it tonight in honor of all the lapsed fans who have past selves celebrating. It's That just it hit me really hard last Sunday, and it's been with me since then, and I just wanted to share that with everybody. No, that's what it's all about. You know, I remember one of the, the coolest quotes, I guess, or stories to come from when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. We do record this on the fourth anniversary of the Eagles winning the Super Bowl. And it was Jason Kelsey was telling this story. I don't remember which player came up to Jason Kelsey. The player came up and said, Jason, this guy just gave me some of his father's ashes. Like, what, what the hell am I supposed to do right now? And Jason was just like, dude, I don't know what any of us are supposed to do right now. That just speaks to the reason we like love sports so much is the the connections that go so far beyond what is actually happening on the field, right? I remember watching this game with so-and-so that was really important to me growing up. And, you know, you bonded with somebody that's really important in your life over a big game. And, like, that's really what it comes down to. So, some people don't get it. And, like, I get that. Like, there's things that other people love that I don't get. But there's some people that are just like, it's just grown men playing a game. Why do you care about it so much? But... That, that's a that's a beautiful, a beautifully constructed tweet in a way that only a poet could do it. That's very beautiful. I just can't stop thinking about Joe Burrow and this GQ article headlined how mild-mannered Joe Burrow became iced out Joe Burr. And it's just all about him getting ridiculous, like, custom chains. It's incredible seeing, the, seeing Joe Burrow's style evolution. Dude just is acting like a... 20-something superstar should act, and I love it. He's, he's everything we thought Baker Mayfield was. 
He's an absolute icon. I loved the side-by-side photo of he and Jamar Chase were sharing a cigar in a locker room. And then sure enough, both their dads in the parking lot doing the exact same thing. I just love that parallelism. Yeah. You know, I, I assume that Mr. Burrow and Mr. Chase had known each other prior to the season, probably going it's back just, to They've LSU celebrated days. their sons winning a championship together before, presumably. It's, right, presumably. Wow, just what a horrifying thought for the NFL that these two in their previous season together won the college national championship and now are in position in their first season together as pros to win the Super Bowl. The league needs to I'm be very board. glad that Eric DaCosta said they're trying to keep Marcus Peters today. That was that was good news considering the Bengals. Yeah, I mean, good for the Bengals. I think we watch sports so that later we can talk about sports with the people that we enjoy doing that with. Uh, we do it all just so we can sit around and remember guys. And on that note, let's go ahead and do that tonight. Last week's dive into the Winter Olympics. Very frequently, I think for all of us, Brought up some technicalities, even before when we've talked about people like Stephen Bradbury. Technicalities were on the mind, and so uh, the challenge that I posed to my compatriots this week was, I want to find the best examples of bending but not breaking the rules. You both have, have sounded very excited. I'm, I'm glad that this was not a challenge to you. That being said, the reason that that spoke to me was there is someone, since we started doing this, I'm like, I'm just waiting for the day that I can tell this story. It's one of my favorite stories in the history of sports. And how appropriate the guy is right there in the name. Do you guys remember the shortest player to ever play in a baseball game? A man by the name of Eddie Guidel. Yes. Eddie Guidel. I didn't remember the name, but yeah. Is who I've brought this evening. Eddie Guidel had a a short-lived career because Eddie Guidel was a a little person, someone that suffered from dwarfism and measured three foot seven. So he is, by a wide margin, the shortest professional baseball player of all time. But that professional baseball playing career is very official, and I would love to tell you all about how much work had to go into making that one plate appearance official. To start with our friend Eddie Geidel. Eddie Geidel is born outside of Chicago, like 1925. Pretty much all of his life is based around the city of Chicago. Very quickly on, people realize that he is suffering from some unspecified condition. I truly cannot find any, like, medical diagnosis. I don't think he ever got one, because they were not a particularly wealthy family, the Geidels. But he is something that causes proportionate dwarfism. This is the, of the two kinds of uh, dwarfisms, disproportionate and proportionate, the rarer one by a, a wide measure. And you can probably figure out roughly what that means. Uh, Eddie Guidel, while being three foot seven, has limbs that match his body rather than limbs that do not necessarily match his body like uh, more famous people that suffer from dwarfism, like, for instance, Peter Dinklage. Because of this, he's still can play sports as a kid, but he is not a particularly athletic kid. He does not have a long athletic career. What he does have instead is a lot of careers that take advantage of being a very small person. As, you know, a young adult, World War II breaks out. Do you want to guess what Eddie Geidel does during World War II? Cleaning tanks or something like that. Pretty close. He's riveting the inside of airplane wings because he can crawl into the inside of airplane wings. And so he's just getting on up in there with his rivet gun and, and getting all of these fastened. War ends, and he decides, you know what, I've, I've had enough of that. I'm going to become an entertainer because, look, I'm a dwarf. People make jokes. I might as well benefit from this. And so he joins the American Guild of Variety Artists. This is back when, like, vaudeville was a big thing. So a lot of the vaudeville performers fell under this. Uh, and just anyone who kind of, like, had a shtick. 
This is back when you could like have a career as an entertainer just kind of having a shtick and just get paid pretty decently for appearances where you did that because no one had anything to watch for entertainment ever. And so makes $100 appearances as his like flat rate for any number of things. Gets a big break in 1946. There's a record company called Mercury Records and they take a picture of him in the uniform of their like cartoon mascot because he has the proper proportions for a cartoon mascot of Mercury Man. And that picture is used as like their artistic reference for decades after this with Mercury Records. So, like I said, he's making about $100 anytime he makes an appearance. That's about $997 today, just short of 1000 So he's making pretty decent money. And in 1951, he gets a call from his agent, Marty Kane. Marty Kane knows someone named Bill Veck. Bill Veck is a almost professional baseball owner because he has done it so many different times in so many different places also serves in the war, being an adult at that time. And the reason I mention that is Bill Veck loses a leg in World War II. He gets a wooden peg leg. And all the time, because he's just a constant smoker, he will just dig little new holes in whatever peg leg he has to use as an ashtray at that time. That's the kind of person that we're dealing with with Bill Veck. That's uh, awesome he gets, and horrifying. Yeah, right? He's a kind of, like, twisted guy. It's that twisted South Park humor. Better than if he was using his non-peg leg to put out the precisely cigarette. precisely it's just wood he could replace it he does frequently apparently he had come up in an accidental baseball family his dad bill Vec, senior he was a writer in chicago he's from the same chicago area and bill Vec senior basically writes an article under the pseudonym bill bailey for uh, one of the newspapers it's like talking about how he would run the cubs differently the owner of the cubs william wrigley jr sees this he's like oh okay bet he gives him the vice president job of the Cubs because of this guy's articles about how he would run the Cubs differently. That year, they win the pennant, and so he makes him the president. And Bill Vec's dad serves as the president of the Cubs for the rest of his life because of that, which is not much longer. He dies 15 years later, but what the fuck? I was born in the wrong time because I've been shitposting for years, <laughs> and a lot of those shitposts have turned out to be right. And if I just had an owner that believed in my shitposting enough to give me a chance to run a team, who knows where I am right now? Josh Harris I, would just give you control of all of his sports enterprises. Oh my goodness. I mean, I mean here's what I'll say. Maury is better than I am, but I would have done better than the fucking Colangelas. I would have done better than the Colangelas. Well, I mean, people could have done a little bit better than Vec. Again, this is the beginning of the Cubs curse, essentially. But he does win three pennants in his time. He's the guy that uh, installs the ivy-covered walls in the outfield of Wrigley. But apparently, it's his son that comes up with the idea. Back to Bill Vec Jr., uh, our main Bill Vec, who is this whole time working as a vendor for both the Cubs and the White Sox because his dad's just getting him the job. He, even after his dad's death, is the treasurer for the Cubs for a little bit. Again, just like the age where if you were a kind of entertaining, mediocre white man, you could just fall into lifelong careers in a beloved sport, pretty much. Now, to Vec's credit, Vec is an owner that pretty much only gets by on the revenue of his baseball team. Vec is not like a rich guy who buys a team. All of the teams that he's going to own are teams that like all of his time is invested in that. That is his business. It starts in 1940 when he gets the then triple A Milwaukee Brewers. Owns them for a few years. They win three titles at their AAA level. And it's, you know, by all means, a very successful first run with a baseball team. But he doesn't want to just have AAA. Bill Vec wants more. Bill Vec reportedly 
wants the Philadelphia Phillies. This is a little bit apocryphal. He apparently tried to buy the Phillies because he was a big fan of the Negro Leagues, and so he wanted to just totally stock it with Negro League players. This is before Jackie Robinson had broken the color barrier and no one had played uh, in the American League since 1890s as an African-American. And so Bill Veck tells Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis that this is his plan as the sale is finalizing. Kennesaw Mountain Landis is a horrific racist, and so Bill Veck quickly finds out that the sale has been made to the National League. The National League just owns the team so that they can handle the sale instead, and he is passed over. Plenty of people have debated whether or not this is true. Bill Veck is the main source for all of this information. Here's what I'll say Bill Veck's credit. Very shortly after this, he does come to own the Cleveland baseball team, and he does install Larry Doby as the very first black player in the American League in 1947, following Jackie Robinson's rookie season. So maybe he's making it up, but he walks the walk, you know, with his peg leg. And things with Cleveland go fantastically, because I said 1947 there, and if you know your Cleveland curses, 1948 is when they go on and win the whole dang thing behind the arm of Bob Feller. And... His second year, they're World Series champions. Phenomenal. That's his second to last year with the team. The next year is his final season with the team because at the end of it, he gets into a big old divorce and does have to sell it in order to pay off those divorce settlements. But you know what? A couple years later, he's got a new wife. He's got a new hometown in St. Louis. And he's got his eyes on a new baseball team. He's going to buy a baseball team in St. Louis. Do you guys know which one? Browns. That is absolutely correct. It is indeed the St. Louis Browns. Bill Veck sees an opportunity. Now, the St. Louis Cardinals, even by now, wildly more successful than the St. Louis Browns. It's not even close. But the St. Louis Browns are technically the landlords of the stadium. And so he figured, you know what? If I can get this right, if I can make the Browns like a big draw, I can force the Cardinals out of town. Forget about their success. I can do that. Spill Vex a madman. And so he's got his new <laughs> wife, he's got his new baseball team, he's got his new town, he's young, dumb, and full of cum, he is ready to rock. And 1951 is the 50th anniversary of the American League. So he's got to really nail it with something this year, right? It's also the birthday of a local brewery. They approach him. They say, hey, let's do something where it's our birthday. It's baseball's birthday. You are a showman extraordinaire. We want you to, to really knock this out of the park. He says, I've got it. He knows exactly what to do. This is when he calls Marty Kane. And Marty Kane connects that call to Eddie Guidel. Eddie Guidel walks right on into the picture. So Bill Veck's idea, he acknowledges 100% was not originally his idea. Many people assume it is from a short story by famed American author James Thurber. You guys can both nod, as though you know who James Thurber is. Yes, indubitably. <laughs> if you have in college any level of like short fiction class, you will at some point read some James Thurber pieces. And one of his stories is called You Can Look It Up, where a manager sends a little person out to bat to try and walk as, as an intentional pinch runner. Uh, sounds pretty similar to what our friend Bill Veck is about to do. Bill Veck claims that instead he got this idea, though, from the late, great John McGraw, longtime manager of the New York Giants. John McGraw apparently used to get wasted with Bill Veck's dad, and they would just, you know, shoot the shit in the bars. And John McGraw said he had this little guy. He referred to him as a gnome in the quotes that Bill oh, Veck has. He's like, I got this guy who works for my team. So one of these days, when it's my last year, I'm going to send that guy out to bat. 
And so Bill Veck, as a little kid, is like, that sounds like the funniest image I can possibly imagine. And it sticks with him for all these years. And so here in 1951, he's like, we need to put this into fruition. And so he calls up Marty Kane. He's like, I need any little person you got with just like a basic sports knowledge. And so Eddie Guidel comes into the office. The two of them meet and they talk it through. Has Eddie Guidel stand there? Eddie Guidel, he's got his bat and he just kind of keeps pushing his shoulders down a little bit for his, no, 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 squat more. He gets him to stand so low, his strike zone, supposedly, Bill Beck pulls out a ruler and measures it as one and a half inches. Like, he's got this guy crouching over the plate, and he and Eddie Guidel come up with this plan. They're going to get one of the Bat Boys uniforms. The Bat Boy is a guy by the name of William DeWitt Jr. The reason I mention that is that guy is now the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals. And so he's the only person small enough with a jersey to fit Eddie Idell. They understand that they can't just show up to the stadium with this. There needs to be paperwork filled out. And so they figure out the perfect day to do it. They pick a Sunday. They're going to do it on Sunday, August 19th, 1951, because they need to file the contract with the league a couple days ahead of time. So their thinking is, we'll file it on Friday, postmark it for Saturday. No one's going to actually check it until Monday. At that point, the game will have passed. We have the room on our roster. They had cleared like a player from the roster to make sure that he could fit on there. His normal rate was $100. What they had to do for the contract was prorate it so that he's getting paid $100 per game. So he signs a $15,400 contract. And normally, back at this time, you would get uh, a full 30 days pay if your contract was canceled at any point. You'd still at least get a full month's pay from it. They have to put in a special like clause in there that he's going to waive this typical policy. People had to truly craft this contract, which he then makes Guidel sign in like a car in an alleyway at a second location they describe. It is very clandestine. But Eddie Guidel is super excited about this. He's thrilled. He's a big sports fan. And this is a dream come true. How is he ever going to be able to have this moment again? He's absolutely thrilled. He does start to get a little bit nervous the day of because... There's another thing that Bill Vec wants to do. Bill Vec understands true entertainment is all about managing expectations. This is a doubleheader on August 19th. It's against the Detroit Tigers. This is the two last place teams at the time between the St. Louis Browns and the Detroit Tigers. A doubleheader in August? That's not necessarily a lot of things that people are going to want to come and see. So <laughs> he's played this up as this huge event. He's hyping it to everybody. And what he does initially is between the games goes and finds Eddie Guidel not loving this part because he's going to make Eddie Guidel put on some pointy shoes and a little pointy hat and dress up as a brownie a brownie is what the St. Louis Browns and Cleveland Browns sometimes use as their mascot and it's a little pixie this is not great Bill Vex not 100% a good dude by any means he puts him in a paper mache cake that is wheeled out onto the field and Eddie Guidel pops out and he's like oh there you go everybody look I brought a real life brownie onto the field and everyone's like that's that's it? Wait, you're Bill Veck. That's it? They're astounded by this. Wait, wait, and I, even the, could, could I interject? Yes. And just ask a question. Fans seemed uninspired at this point, but would you say that Bill Veck had more shit to prove in terms of what he had to display here? Bill Veck lives his life as if every single second requires shit to be proven. Because Bill Veck knows now is the time that people are going to get. Like, the, the sponsors are literally yelling at him as the game begins. He's calm, collected, because he knows what's about to happen. They're going to send out their backup center fielder. He's in the lineup as the leadoff hitter, Frank Saucier. They put him out there 
and immediately pull him from the game for a pinch hitter. Eddie Guidel steps up wearing the number one-eighth on his uniform, and he walks into the batter's box. Everyone loses their fucking minds. No one knows what to do. The umpire's like, no, I'm sorry, walk away. <laughs> Bill Vec, what are you doing? This is a mockery of the sport. Everyone is dying. Their manager, uh, Cincinnati Bengals coach Zach Taylor, sorry, St. Louis Browns manager Zach Taylor, walks out. They had made sure to have a printed-out copy of the roster, indicating that they clearly optioned a player to make room for Eddie Guidel. They had the notarized copy of his contract on hand. They show it to the umpire, and the umpire does what I refer to as, you know, the airbud ruling. Well, there is nothing that says you can't do this. Eddie it's Guidel the bench steps up to play. It's the benchwarmers ruling. <laughs> He's got documentation. He's got documentation, and... I am a guy. <laughs> everyone is losing. The fans, they get it now. They totally get what Bill Veck was doing now. And Bill Veck's a good showman. People enjoy Bill Veck's bullshit. He's absolutely, like, hamming it up to everybody. Eddie Guidel's hamming it up. The Detroit Tigers battery, uh, Bob Kane, the pitcher, and Bob Swift, the catcher, they're like, okay, no, what are we going to do here? Apparently the catcher, Bob Swift's like, I'm taking this a little personally. Like, we're going to at least try at first gets on his knees to catch for Eddie Guidel. He's completely abandoned his stance. He's all the way down to the ground, basically. Even with that, both of Bob Kane's first fastballs are, like, just over the strike zone. They're both called balls. He's eventually just laughing to death on the mound. He throws two ephuses at the end there, and, and Eddie Guidel's walked on four pitches. Now, here's another thing regarding kind of the origin of this idea. Very clearly... Bill Veck is aware of the James Thurber story. You can look it up. Because in that story, the twist is the dwarf does go up 3 nothing. He's got the batter's count, and he gets too cocky. He swings, and he grounds out to first because it takes him forever to run to first base. Bill Veck told Eddie Guidel ahead of this game that he's going to take out a million-dollar life insurance policy on him and sit on top of the stands with a hunting rifle. And if he saw the bat leave his shoulder, he was going to kill him. He, he's, like, very nervous. Eddie Guidel kind of stands up and starts taking a Joe DiMaggio stance as the at-bat goes on. He's like, squinch down. One and a half inches. We talked about this. Walks to first base. Stops twice to bow on the walk to first base. Gets to first base. Is pulled for the normal center fielder. Now the normal center fielder is going to be the pinch runner, and basically he is just the, the leadoff hitter again. This was all just done to have this one plate appearance. Eddie Guidel exits to a standing ovation. The crowd is losing their minds over Eddie Guidel. And so, of course, the St. Louis Browns do indeed lose 6-2. It is a disappointing game. One that for a little bit, Major League Baseball basically says they want to wipe away. Like for the first year, because American League President Will Herridge just hated fun, he wanted to completely erase Eddie Guidel's plate appearance. Like just say, nope, didn't have this is this is a disgrace. Bill Veck comes to him. He's like, I'm gonna file so many lawsuits against you if you do this because he points out reigning American League MVP Phil Rizzuto is five foot six. He's like, look, I'm sorry. Where's the cutoff? Commissioner finally relents. With the new added rule that no player can step into a batter's box until a commissioner has approved their contract. So, Eddie Guidel has one plate appearance ever. He is one of five players with one plate appearance and a walk for it. The first one since the 1910s, the last one until 2007. This is a singular thing, never allowed to happen again, and Eddie Guidel couldn't care less. He says he felt like Babe Ruth, even though... Eddie Guidel can tell this is 100% just made to be an entertaining moment. 
he loves it. This is this is his moment. This is his moment of fame. He makes seventeen thousand dollars over the next couple years just for television appearances related to this. This is an absolute landfall for him, and it is not his last time working with Bill Vec either. Bill Vec does not last in St. Louis much longer. Surprisingly enough, he is not able to push out the St. Louis Cardinals from town. In fact, uh, in 1953, when he finally has to kind of give up on the Browns, he gives up with the understanding that they are about to move to Baltimore to become the Orioles. That's right. Eddie Geidel's one plate appearance technically belongs to the Baltimore Orioles franchise. Congratulations, Baltimore. (laughs) As I said, Bill Vec, professional baseball owner, he's not done. In 1959, he hears of the Comiskey family. We associate with the Chicago White Sox. There was some, some family turmoil. This is like, I will take advantage of that. Let me go ahead and buy that controlling share. Thank you very much. Hey, I own the White Sox. And now Bill Vec owns the White Sox. And very early on in his time, it's like, you know what? I need some new promotions. Eddie Geidel, what you up to? Eddie Geidel and three other dwarves, one day in 1959, the first season that he takes over the Chicago White Sox, are helicoptered onto the infield, dressed as aliens, because he has them give ray guns to infielders Nellie Fox and Luis Aparicio. So this is the second time that Eddie Geidel ever gets to step onto a baseball field. Would you like to hear about the third time that Eddie Geidel and Bill Veck work together? Yes, tell me. I need it. Two years later, in 1961, this is their last hurrah, Bill Veck has had a lot of people complain about not being able to see the game because of the vendors. All the sight lines are getting ruined. So for one game in 1961... Bill Vec hires for one day and a concession staff entirely staffed by individuals with dwarfism, including Eddie Geidel, so that no patrons could possibly complain about the vendors ruining their sight lines of the baseball game. <laughs> That's... This well, is all hey, in Bill Vec's first tour with the Chicago White Sox. Bill Vec's second tour with the Chicago White Sox? That's right, he's the Grover Cleveland of Chicago White Sox owners. He does have two non-consecutive terms of owning this team. And in the second one, he's the owner that is okay with the disco demolition night. That's also Bill Vec. Bill Vec, an absolutely insane person, but it's not about him. It's about Eddie Geidel, and unfortunately, 1961 is the end of Eddie Geidel's story. Eddie Geidel does have some issues with alcoholism throughout his life. And understandably, he's someone who has this moment of fame, and it's now been a decade. That fame has faded a little bit. He apparently had some interpersonal stress with family, with romantic partners. And in June of 1961, on June 18th, 10 days after he turned 36, he's at a bar. He's apparently followed home by some guys from the bar. They mug him, beat him to hell. He is found dead by his mother in his bed the next day. It is, uh, it's a tough look. He dies at 36. He is, however, visited by one individual from his baseball past at his funeral. And his funeral's recently well done. I don't want to make it sound like he died completely alone and everything. Like, several friends and family show up. One person from baseball shows up. It's not Bill Veck. It is Bob Kane, who, if you'll remember, is the pitcher that walked Eddie Geidel on four straight pitches. They never formally met, despite Bob Kane actually playing for the St. Louis Browns for two years while Bill Veck was still the owner. Had never spoken once since the game. No contact whatsoever, but Bob Kane heard about Eddie Geidel's passing. He saw the obituary, and he just felt as though he had to go to that funeral. He had to be a part of it. Uh, and I think that's one of my favorite parts about the Eddie Geidel story, which is unfortunately too short, but it is time that he fills with a couple distinctions, and I want to touch on those. He is the shortest ever baseball player of all time. One of five players with a perfect on-base percentage, although, of course, that is with only one plate appearance. He is the only person in the major four American sports leagues to have ever worn a jersey number 
that is not an integer or whole number. That one-eighth was his official number, and no one else has ever not worn a whole number on their jersey, so that's a fun one. And his autograph, because of the rarity of it, he's a little bit surly. He didn't love signing autographs. <laughs> it is worth more than Babe Ruth's at this point. The most recent autograph of him was a picture of him as that Mercury man for Mercury Records. It sold for $6,960. Nice. So close to being double nice. Why not double nice? <laughs> That's the thing. I don't think you can like wager non ten dollar amounts. And I don't know how auctioning works. That's way too much money for anything. As fun as this story is, and I do absolutely love this. This is this is one of my favorite stories in baseball history. How much do you think uh, Eddie Guidel NFT would go for? Far more than it should, because it would probably <laughs> be more than one cent. Very fair. We are we are a anti NFT podcast. But yes. I do, I do, I do find the concept of them hilarious. Oh, it's hysterical! And like, as someone that's very interested in in the commodification of art, there is a way that they could have been an interesting thing if it wasn't developed by some of the worst people in the world who also have absolutely no understanding of art. The thing that kills me with them is it's like, yeah, like I mean, like you said, it could have been a great way for artists to, you know, protect their own intellectual property and you know make sure that they retain rights in this digital space. But instead, all it's become is just a bunch of fucking rich assholes with monkeys as their avatars. And it's just the same monkey symbol. every time. The monkey maybe has a funny little hat. Maybe this monkey's pink. Maybe this monkey's green. I, you might be onto something. Is Eddie Geidel the next, like, interchangeable NFT avatar? Many people are saying this. Eddie Geidel as a brownie? No, if we made that, we'd go to hell. No, that's no, terrible. No, that, would be, that would be a line too far. But, you know, I do think there's, if we have any listeners that understand anything about the blockchain or whatever the fuck they call it because i don't understand anything about it let us know can uh we can mint the the first eddie Guidel nft watch the folding ideas uh video called line goes up on nfts it's like two hours long it's on youtube and it's really 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 good and it essentially compares them to how the housing market crashed with the subprime mortgages yeah. uh, and credit default swaps hey hey but but number go up Number two go up. Until number goes zero. Well, hey, Eddie Guidel's number will ever go to zero. He will have that perfect on-base percentage forever. He is actually in the Baseball Hall of Fame. There's a cutout of Eddie Guidel standing even shorter than three foot seven because it's at his batting stance. And it is compared against a Minnesota Twins jersey that was worn by John Eric Rock, who was six foot 11. So that is the tallest and shortest baseball player in MLB history. And uh, that, that is on display in the hall. I think it's incredible that something that started out as a bit, there's no way that the vast majority of human beings who know who Eddie Idell is would know. And it's what more can one hope for than to do something that is memorable and lasts past you for so many people, as long as it's not like a horrible thing that people are remembering you for. And hey, getting a walk once and getting to bow two times on the first baseline as you exit mm -hmm. to a standing ovation for your one ever plate appearance. That's a pretty good thing to remember, I think. That's, yeah, that's pretty awesome. That is my favorite part, too, because I try to think, like, what I would do if I ever was in that position. I would do the exact same thing. Like, if I somehow, like, oh, you're the lucky fan, you get to play in this NBA game, and I made, like, a wide-open layup, I'm, like, I'm running into the crowd to celebrate with them immediately. I'm hamming it up as <laughs> much as possible. Eddie Guidel and I, you know, we are not, we're not so different, he and I. Well, that's, I mean, that's my guy. It's right there in the name. Eddie Goddell, I think his credentials are strong, but I'm not foolish enough to think that you two aren't also bringing your A game. So please, Xavier, if you would, give us that heat. 
Okay, before I get into uh, my guy, I do have I did find uh, two very interesting stories that I wanted to bring up first. So I'll let the two of you pick which goes first. Do you want to hear about swimming or cricket? Cricket first. Cricket, easy. Okay, so the 2019 Cricket World Cup final was between England and New Zealand, and it was played at uh, Lord's Cricket Ground in London. Real quick, do either of you know how you score in cricket? Uh, it's mostly uh, running between the two wickets, but also you can score by like hitting the equivalent of ground rule doubles or home runs. I don't remember the exact yes. terminology. So standard way of scoring, two batsmen on either side of the pitch, one bats at a time, that's the striker. Striker tries to hit the ball, and then both batsmen run from one side to the other. If both of them make it to the other side, that's a run. And you can do that as many times as it takes for the fielders to get the ball back to either to, to the wickets. You can also get four runs if you hit a ball that hits the ground and then bounces over the boundary line, or you can get a six if you hit it over the boundary line on the fly. But another way you can score is on an overthrow. Uh, If a fielder throws the ball towards the wickets while the batsmen are running and they miss and the ball goes wide, if it hits the boundary, the batting team gets an extra four runs. With that setup, in this match... England was down to their last over, which is six legal uh, bowls, and they were down 14 runs. They needed 14 from the six. Their batsman, Ben Stokes, didn't score on his first two. No no runs. And he hits a six on the uh, third ball. So now they're only down eight with three chances left. On this ball, Stokes hits it in play, and it's fielded by Martin Guptill of New Zealand. Stokes has already one line and is running back towards the second to try to stretch it for two runs. Guptil throws it, throws the ball in towards the wickets. Stokes dives for the crease uh, to get the second run. With his bat in hand, the bat goes up, hits the ball, ball goes flying. Completely accidental, but the ball hits the bat and goes flying. All the way to the boundary, four more runs. However, the umpire says that Stokes had crossed the line, so they give them two runs plus four, which makes six. England scores one run each on their next two balls to tie it. Unfortunately, based on the, the, on the rules, since Stokes had not crossed the line when the ball was thrown, should, he should not have been credited for that extra run. Only should have been five. England should have lost. The umpire later admitted, you know, he was wrong but that he doesn't regret it because he didn't have the benefit of TV replay, so it's not his fault. Because of but I'm assuming mi- it, was, it was fairly obvious that the throw was well before, right? Like, yes, it, 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 I, was, I, it was... I don't think that's a bang-bang play. It was fairly yeah. obvious because the ball hits Stokes' bat before he crossed the line, so clearly the ball was thrown... Well, before, yeah, like well if it's a question that. of whether or not he tagged it, then maybe. But if you're talking about it being anywhere near his run, then it, no. It's a complete misinterpretation of the rules. They can't, they, they can't go back and change it. The six stays, England scores one run each on the next two, and they tie it up and force overtime, which is called a super over, where each team gets six balls, score as much as you can in those, in those six. They tie again after the super over. And this has never happened before, so no one knows what, what's supposed to happen. The umpires get together, and they give England the win. 
because of a completely unknown rule where if after the tie, there's still a tie, whichever team had the most boundaries during the match wins. And nobody else, no one really knew this at all. And it caused a massive uproar to the point where the Cricket uh, Federation immediately changed the rules. So it would be, you keep going to extra overtimes, extra super overs, if it's still tied. Because we have England forcing overtime based off of a technicality of not being able to change a clearly wrong call. And then winning on a technicality that no one knew about. Also, it's based on that earlier call, because it's an over, or a boundary that would have been from that disputed call. They won by more boundaries, so it wouldn't have just been that. Like, if it was by one boundary, okay. and that was the thing, okay. that would have been, I think that would have been even crazier. But they did Big have, New like, Zealand would have killed them. They had maybe, like, nine more boundaries. I think it was, like, 26 to 17. But um, two crazy technicalities, misinterpretations, gives England the Cricket World Cup. I mean, I'm just surprised that with as busy as he usually is with football over there, I'm surprised that Mike Dean had time to come over and officiate <laughs> a cricket match as well. No, it's it's good to take a shot at Mike Dean. It was a Sri Lankan re- uh, umpire, so I don't uh, want to give him too much shit. It was, I mean, listen, Mike Dean has gone to further lengths to to obfuscate the truth before. So <laughs> That is true. But uh, yeah, so that's the cricket story. And then, real quick, the swimming story. Uh, so this was the women's 4x200-meter uh, freestyle relay at the 2001 swimming champi- uh, World Swimming Championships in Fukuoka, Japan. This wasn't much of a contest. Australia and the U.S. dominated. Australia won with a time of 7 minutes 56 seconds flat. U.S. second with 7 minutes 56 seconds, 0.53 milliseconds. And then Great Britain's in third at 7 minutes 58 seconds, 0.69 milliseconds. Every other country... Slower than eight minutes. Not really a contest. Australian team wins. The three swimmers who had already finished jump into the, into the pool lane to celebrate with their teammate who's still in the pool. After getting out, they wait for the official results to be announced. Unfortunately, over the loudspeaker, you hear Australian team disqualified. They had won by so much that by the time they jumped in the pool to celebrate, the last swimmer was about a half second from finishing. So by ent- all, th- all four of them entering the pool at the same time, they were immediately disqualified, even though it had no effect on the outcome of the race. Wow. You would think that this would give the medal to the second place team, the U.S. However, they were also announced as disqualified because apparently one of their first changeover happened 0.06 seconds too quickly outside of the 0.03 seconds margin of error. This also would have had no material effect on the outcome, but this means Great Britain gets the gold, Germany gets the silver, Japan gets the bronze. But this the isn't the end of things. That's conspiracy if I've ever heard one. But yeah. this isn't the end of things. This isn't the end of things. So both Australia and the U.S. appealed the decisions. The uh, U.S. provided video evidence and some testimony from other entrants about how the touchpads had been faulty the whole week. And this is the, on the touchpads. They can prove that they did not go early. Race officials call an emergency review. Say, you know what? Based on your on, on, on this evidence, you're right. It was too close to call. It reinstated the U.S., gave them the victory. However, a FINA jury, uh, the, the Swimming Federation, uh, overturned the reinstatement two days later and upheld both disqualifications, saying that the system worked perfectly. This isn't the end, though. Oh, my goodness. Four months later, 
in a surprise announcement that no one was expecting, Tina announced they would be awarding a second set of gold medals to the U.S. team. In a very confusing statement, they said, quote, to avoid any reasonable doubt regarding the women's relay 4x200 meter freestyle final of the 10th FINA World Swimming Championships in Fukuoka, but without unfairly changing the official results of the race, the Bureau decided to grant a second set of gold medals to the USA team. The U- Look, I- Yay, USA, whatever. Like, the, the USA did not win the race! We are not the aggrieved party here! And this is the thing. So, Australia 100% broke, broke the rules. They, like, that. It, it, it's not in debate that they broke the rules. Everything shows that they jumped in the pool before the, before the last swimmer touched. And it wasn't, it wasn't particularly close. So Australia's this is why Australia is not a bigger thing. But the USA had video evidence and testimony from multiple countries about the faulty these faulty touchpads. The thing the thing that's really confusing is that this never gets fully explained what this FINA statement means. The most commonly accepted thought is that the USA said that they were going to appeal FINA's overturn of their reinstatement, upholding their disqualification to CAS, the uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport. Fina was really afraid of getting into a court battle, so they they admitted they were wrong without officially admitting they were wrong by giving the USA medals, but keeping the official results, saying the USA and Australia were disqualified and Great Britain was the winner. That's so like, stupid. Like, imagine if the NCAA was like, "All right, uh, you know, Reggie Bush, sorry, you, you took some money, so Vince Young uh, gets a Heisman, but uh, but Reggie, you also get a Heisman." You're, you're both Heisman. You're both, congratulations. You, you both did it. Only one of you actually did it. We're not sure which one of you is actually the Heisman winner, but you're both the Heisman winner. Congratulations. No, I mean, Vince Young is definitely the Heisman winner. Reggie Bush just also won a Heisman. All the Heismans. All right, thank, well, you for, the th- thank you for I letting me say these stories. I love uh, yeah, this is the Moose Bush, but where's the... Uh, I'm ready, the I'm ready, ready for some, some, uh, some main course here. Yes. All right, so before... I named my guy. I need to do a little play setting. It's the night of January 15th, 1990. The Chicago Bulls are playing the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden. Michael Jordan is leading the Bulls at 26 points, despite an off-shooting night. Uh, he was only shooting 9 for 24. Meanwhile, Patrick Ewing has 33 points, 12 boards, 8 blocks, and 5 assists uh, to lead the Knicks, and the game is tied at 106. After a timeout, there is one-tenth of a second left, and Mark Jackson is inbounding the ball. He's looking for Patrick Ewing for an alley-oop. But Ewing's being tightly guarded, and Jackson has to look for another option. Suddenly, someone comes open, and Jackson gets them the ball. In the blink of an eye, the shot is up, and a three-pointer is drained, giving the Knicks the win. The Bulls look stunned, and Phil Jackson is enraged, yelling at every ref he can find. But the Knicks don't care, and reserve point guard celebrates as he unknowingly changed the course of NBA history. Of course, I'm talking about the one and only Trent Tucker. Trent I am Tucker. not familiar with Trent Tucker, but I that was, was one of the best intros I've ever heard. So I like Trent Tucker is about to become my new favorite basketball player. That whole build up, I was hoping it was going to John Starks. See, after you said that yesterday, I was really sad because John Starks does not join the team until next year. Oh, but Trent Tucker. Let, let's let's get uh, into Trent it. Tucker. You might not know who Trent Tucker is by name, but you'll get into it in a minute. Real quick background about Trent Tucker from North Carolina, uh, born December 20th, 1959, and went to the University of Minnesota, where he led the Golden Gophers to the Big Ten Championship in the senior season of 1981-1982. His number 32 was later retired by Minnesota in 2009. 
Tucker was then drafted by the Knicks six overall in the 1982 draft. Never really developed into a starter, but was one of the earliest three-point specialists in NBA history, with a career three-point percentage over 40. In fact, Tucker even competed in the first-ever three-point competition during the 1985-86 season, losing in the semis to the eventual winner. Anyone know who won the first-ever three-point competition? Larry Bird. Yeah. Walked in and said, which one of you motherfuckers is coming in second? And did not take off his warm-up jacket or his warm-up pants for the entire fucking thing. All-time boss move. And then Larry Bird won the next two as well because he's Larry Bird. (laughs) But after nine seasons with the Knicks, Tucker played one season for the San Antonio Spurs. And then another in Chicago uh, where he won a title with the Bulls in the 1993 season. But enough about Trent Tucker the person. I want to talk about Trent Tucker the rule. The Trent Tucker rule is the basketball rule that says that you cannot catch and shoot if there is less than 0.3 seconds on the clock. Huh. That, is, that is the Trent Tucker rule. The official rule is from the National Basketball Association says no less than 0.3 seconds must expire on the game clock and shot clock when a ball is thrown inbounds and then hit instantly out of bounds. The game clock and shot clock must show at least 0.3 in order for a player to secure possession of the ball on a rebound or throw in to attempt a field goal. So... What happens this night on January, January 15th is that the official score, the, the timekeepers forget to start the, uh, the clock. The clock does not move until Tucker has already shot the ball. And the, the Bulls, they, they protest. They said that by their estimates, the play took closer to 0.4 seconds. But the timekeeper that was working the game, Bob Billings and referee Ronnie Nunn, said, nah, everything wor- went perfectly fine. And this is, this is in MSG. Right. This is in MSG. Yes. Okay, that makes okay. sense. I was this call is passing at the United Center. At the United Center, it's being that that horn's being sounded before the inbound pass is even thrown. So the only NBA executive that uh, sided with the Bulls was Rod Thorne, who had been the general manager of the Bulls beforehand. <laughs> and Thorne argued that it was physically impossible for a player to receive an inbounds pass and release it for a shot in less than a tenth of a second. And he had pointed out that. The European basketball leagues had tested this uh, because European basketball had counted down the final minutes of a period in tenths for many years. This was actually the first year that the NBA had adopted counting down by tenths of a second at the end of quarters. So rule about the game clocks had just been adopted. Most uh, NBA venues were not set up for it. So they had a bunch of calibration flaws. Clocks would freeze when one-tenth of a second was... was, uh, Appear, appeared because it took them a, a little bit to calibrate the tenths down to the full zero. And say one tenth of a second might be closer to three tenths, four tenths because of this calibration error, because none of these arenas were set up for it. So they, the NBA had to buy a whole bunch of different scoring systems uh, so they can actually get this working. Some didn't have this until the 2000s either being cheap or just not thinking it was a big deal. That's surprisingly bad. I know that professional sports owners are cheap, but that's like Wrigley not having lights until recently. Well, do you you want to take a guess about what uh, arena was the last to have one? Oh, that's a good question. Cheap owners. So the first instinct would be to say the Clippers because of Ron Sterling. But they had shared the venue with the Lakers, so the Lakers would have definitely had it. New Jersey. No. All right, I'm out. Those are my two. Charlotte. 
Charlotte. Charlotte. I, I, I wouldn't have thought Charlotte. Well, that's a new franchise too. Like you got a budget for this shit, man. You can't just be nickel and You knew about this rule franchise. when you came into existence. Like what the fuck? So it was the diamond as an expansion franchise. It was the it was the Charlotte Bobcats. Love the Charlotte Bobcats. My sister Charlotte still has a Bobcats jersey to this day. Is it an Adam Morrison one? No, it's a uh, custom great, one though. that my dad made exclusively for the joke that it's the Charlotte Bobcats. It just says her name and the number 23 on the back. Fair, also, fair, dad fair. did not make that with the thought of the fact that Michael Jordan's number is 23. That's just the day my sister was born on in her birth month. What <laughs> <Fun> coincidence. <laughs> dad don't good. know hoops. So this rule is not standardized across all basketball. FIBA didn't implement the Trent Tucker rule until 2010. And the NCAA has a different version of the Trent Tucker rule. And people didn't realize this for a while. It came to the forefront during a game between the University of South Florida and Florida Gulf Coast on December 17th, 2013. FGCU was down three. I remember this game. I remember. I was furious at this. FGCU is losing. Full court inbounds pass with 0.3 seconds left. FGC player gets the shot off before the game clock expires, but the equivalent NCAA rule was invoked to wave it off despite the fact that he clearly got it off in time, because the NCAA rule is that you can't catch and shoot if there is .3 seconds left. NBA rule is .3 the quick, the, the least amount of time you can have for catch and shoot. NCAA .4 is actually the least, least amount, so even though he clearly gets it off in time, it's waved off. So that was why I was so angry because like, I remember watching that game because this was the year after FGCU went on their awesome run to the Sweet 16. Won both those games in Philadelphia, by the way. Um, <laughs> two Philadelphia fans serenading them with Eagles chants, E-A-G-L-E-S, because they are the Florida Gulf Coast Eagles. Yeah, I was furious watching that because they were like, oh, well, the rule is you can't shoot it that quickly. I'm like, okay, but he literally did. Like the clock started when he touched the ball. And by the time it left his hands, the clock had not expired. So just logically, I was infuriated. Also, that's a weird discrepancy that they have that tenth of a second differential. Like, oh, what? Yeah, it's not. It's not until uh, you're getting paid that you actually develop the the reaction time to get that off a tenth of a second quicker. Like, and I looked at the NCAA rulebook. That is still that's still the rule today. So they they have yet to, yet to change it. I'm surprised that no one complained enough after that game to get that changed. I mean, it's the NCAA, not a whole lot of, of power for the athletes in 2013. What's There's actually another a, a really interesting thing about that is that um, Sports Science did an episode where they were they wanted to see just how quickly could you get a shot off in, in the perfect conditions. They teamed up with Jason Capono to test this, and... It's a really fascinating video. I'll, I'll send it to you guys later on. But with the technology they had that the sports science people had, they measured that Jason Capone was able to catch and shoot in 0.22 seconds. There you the go. Talk was, the talk was, if the NBA actually wanted to, the technology exists where they could just get rid of the Trent Tucker rule in general and measure it in thousands of a second so where they can actually just say, okay, you either got it off or you didn't. You know, we could see this this possibly happen in the future. Seems like 0.22 is probably the quickest you can get off, but you could possibly get it off a little quicker than that. It, it was really fascinating to watch watch them test and see see how far they can get with that. What always bothered me with that stuff is, like, I, I have a background in sports broadcast production. 
when you're on the replay machine, you can go literally frame by frame and you know exactly how many frames per second the camera records. That's what always bothered me where people like are worried about timing these things. It's like, no, go frame by frame. Where is the first frame that you see that the ball is contacting this player's hand? Okay. How many frames do we have to go forward until we see that the ball is clearly out of his hands? Boom. And if it's a 60 uh, frames per second camera and you go 10 frames, then that's 0.16 seconds. You don't need, like I've heard like they have like a stopwatch when they're watching the replay. I'm like, this is insane to me. You have the built-in technology to measure to a fairly high degree of specificity the amount of time that it took. What are we doing? I think it speaks to the fragility of the egos of the people that often fill umpire and referee roles. And to their credit, I think once upon a time, that was an incredibly difficult job to do with a lot of emotional and mental stress. And I commend their forebears who went through all that. That being said, there's so much technology to make it easier to do this stuff. And yet we continue apace as fools to protect the feelings of these fools. (laughs) Think about the jobs, James. Think about the economy. They just need to learn to code. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, One other interesting bit. 16 years after the Trent Tucker game that led to the Trent Tucker rule, another team was able to win a game on a buzzer beater with 0.1 seconds left. No one had, had scored in that less of time since then. And this was the Knicks again. It was David Lee. Oh, fuck that guy. <laughs> Former Spur. David Lee in a game against, the, against Charlotte in double overtime tips, it, it tips one in on an inbound with 0.1 second left. The exact play that they tried to draw up to Patrick Ewing 16 years prior. Knicks win on a shot from 0.1 seconds in 1990. No one else does it until the Knicks win again on a shot at 0.1 second in 2006. So, oh, you know what? It's, uh, it's 2022 this year. I guess we're due, they're due, due for, for one, one. They're due for one this year. I guess we'll see. I'll, I'll have to call up R.J. Barrett and uh, Julius Randle. Well, and it's, it's good that they could sustain so much of a winning culture in between these momentous shots. Oh, you know it. But, uh, NBA is better when the Knicks are good. I will, I, I will say that. But Yeah, no, I, don't, <laughs> I, I do not relish the loss of the Knicks. I just acknowledge it. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, finals, that's, the, uh, that's the Trent Tucker rule. The, the, ke- the catch-and-shoot rule, the .3-second rule, whatever you want to call it, it is officially the Trent Tucker rule named after Trent Tucker. I wanted to give him a shout-out because... I feel like that rule is talked about a lot. Everyone knows it really is the catch-and-shoot rule, but I feel like people forget the Trent Tucker part. I like that it came to be because it pissed Michael Jordan off enough, basically. Yeah, it pissed Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan off so much that they had to change the, change the rules. Michael Jordan is the all-time petty king. That's what it really <laughs> comes down to. I just, brief, brief, like my favorite Michael Jordan story, and you know, as a person of my age that grew up loving basketball... Considered Michael Jordan just a step short of a god. And my favorite Michael Jordan story is that entering his attempt to repeat his first finals, going against the Blazers, right? And they're going against Clyde Drexler. And the talk at the time was, you know, Jordan and Clyde Drexler are the exact same player, but Clyde Drexler is probably a better three point shooter. And Michael Jordan, in the first game of that series, in the first half, Sets the NBA Finals record for most threes made in the game. <laughs> Just absurd. And that's that's when the like the famous shrug. That's what the shrug was. Was when he hit his sixth three in the first half to set the finals record. All time petty king. 
And I'm sure Michael Jordan probably spent hours in the gym afterwards, like working on how quick of a shot he can do to like replicate that same thing because that's who he is. And, uh, and that's why he's the GOAT. But anyway, good, good Trent Tucker story. Well, so, Diaz, we've heard about your GOAT. Let's hear about your guy. All right. So what I'm going to pitch to you is one of the most incredible technicalities in the history of sports. Truly an absurd thing in a sport that some would say is silly. Golf can be silly from a few perspectives. It's a massive use of land when there's a lot of uh, fucking homeless people and, you know, people that need land for resources and shit. But we just use so much turf for this game, which I do love. I don't I don't want to shit on it. And golf is, is a long game with a lot of silly rules. And kind of tease because I want to build our way up to it. I want the story when I tell it to be more dramatic. But I want to tell you guys about the greatest golfer that you've never heard of. His name is Roberto Di Vincenzo. You, you are correct in your assumption that I have not heard of this person. <laughs> he is same here. He, and he is the greatest golfer that you've never heard of. So Roberto Di Vincenzo, born and raised in Argentina. Unlike many golf players, many people that become famous in golf, it is a sport of the elite, one could say. You know, it's rich like people. Affluence. Affluence. Roberto uh, does not fall into this category. Roberto falls into the category of just a kid that just loves sports. So when he was eight years old, he became a ball retriever at the local golf club, El Club Deportivo Mitre de Miguelites uh, in the Buenos Aires suburbs. He starts off as literally just a ball retriever, like, hey, kid, I can't find my ball. Can you go find it? He goes running for it, comes up with whatever he's got. He quickly upgrades himself to a caddy, and in being a caddy, he's learning the game from the guys that he's caddying for, but he can't quite afford uh, his own clubs. So, you know, one of my favorite stories about, you know, young baseball players in Latin America is, you know, they'll, they'll make the glove out of the, the milk carton, whatever things they can do to, to curl up into a ball. So Roberto takes a similar approach, and he taught himself how to golf the cork ball and a tree branch. His first golf club was just a tree branch, and he was just hitting his cork ball, and he noted that it was never easy uh, for him to, to really get the hang of it because the cork ball was so subjective to the wind. But one of my favorite kind of sayings in sports is if you make practice harder than the game, it's going to make the game that much easier. So the fact that he's practicing with these cork balls, he ends up becoming quite a master of just controlling the ball and hitting it exactly where he wants to hit it once he upgrades to, to real equipment. And when he started, he was, he was just playing with other caddies. So he said, direct quote, it was just using my imagination. I would compete with the other caddies for the 10 cents that it cost to go see a movie. It was never easy because the cork ball would blow around in the wind. But he becomes infatuated with the sport. He becomes infatuated with mastering his craft. It turns out, you know, he is a bit of a natural athlete. He has natural strength and talent for this. Um, so he progresses fairly quickly, uh, so quickly to the point that at the age of 15, he drops out of school to become a full-time assistant at the local golf club, uh, Ranale Golf Club, which is 12 miles south of Buenos Aires. And within four years, he has claimed his first victory in the Litoral Open in Rosario. This is the first of many victories in the career of Roberto Di Vincenzo. I just want to run through his career accolades real quickly. His lengthy professional career, he had 231 professional victories. He won 48 national open championships in 17 different countries. 490 top five finishes for his career. He has one major championship. 
1967 British Open. This championship actually comes towards the end of his career. He's, he's 44 years old when he finally wins his first major. And when he goes into this tournament, he's actually a pretty sizable underdog. Again, he's had an amazing golf career up to this point, but at 44 years of age, you know, people aren't necessarily expecting greatness from him. So even back in these days, back in the 60s, you know, sports gambling is a very big thing now. It was still a thing back then. So the bookies had his odds at 70 to 1. And Roberto said, now listen, I'm not saying I'm great. I'm better than 70 to 1. So Roberto goes ahead and he puts $100, uh, 100 pounds, excuse me, because this again, again, this is the British Open. It's being played at Liverpool, actually, at the Liverpool um, club. So at 70 to 1 odds, he puts down 100 pounds on himself to win. And he had some confidence here because he had very recently just played an exhibition with Jack Nicholas, which he won. And he recently won uh, just another tournament, the Roosevelt Memorial Nine Nations Trophy. So he's feeling pretty good entering this. So he puts the 100 pounds down. And sure enough, he goes on and ends up winning the whole thing. He talks about <laughs> when, he, when he, he's on the 72nd hole, he's already got it pretty well in hand. And the, the guys that he's playing with are saying, oh, hey, congratulations to Roberto. You just won the Open Championship. And he says, all I remember about that 18th hole is my legs were numb. It, it, it felt like a daydream. It felt like he was walking on air the whole time. And also knowing, you know, golf especially is a game where you can melt down at the end. Things can go awry at the end. This is a little bit of foreshadowing here. And you can end up costing yourself the victory. But in this instance, Roberto does not. So at the age of 44, he claims his first Open Championship. And here's a funny bit because it's funny from two perspectives. So first of all, first place prize for winning a major golf championship was 2,100 pounds. Oh, he Not just won significantly more than that, though. This was dwarfed by the 7,100 pounds that he won from the bookies having bet on himself. So he makes a little more than three times the amount of his prize money for actually winning the championship for the bet that he had placed on himself. That reminds me of dodgeball. Right, no, exactly. I, 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 I wonder if, if they were somewhat inspired by that. But, I mean, A, it's incredible to... Regardless of like the dollar amounts, like to have that confidence in yourself and then to have it hit, but also to think of just how much money is in professional sports now, and to think that this guy just got twenty one hundred pounds for winning one of the most prestigious golf tournaments in the world, arguably the most prestigious golf tournament in the world. But if you were gonna say that there's one golf tournament that is more prestigious than the British Open Championship, which championship would you say that that would be? Masters. The Masters, and that is where. You reach the crux of our story here. First of all, one other thing I want to say about this. Roberto Di Vincenzo, in winning the British Open at the age of 44, became the second oldest champion at that time to, to ever win a major championship. These days, he is the 10th oldest to have ever won one. But at the time, the second oldest to, to have ever achieved this. So now we go forward to the Masters. And we're going to flash forward to round four. Today is April 14th. This is the day that Roberto Di Vincenzo turns 45 years old. He enters Championship Sunday atop the leaderboard. A couple strokes ahead of the field, it's not quite clear who his main rival is going to be today. As the day progresses, it becomes clear that an American by the name of Bob Golby is going to be the main competition. The way that golf championships work, obviously, we can't just have everybody playing the same hole at the same time, progressing linearly. Bob Golby is two groups behind Roberto. 
when Roberto's on the third hole, Golby's on the first, when he's on the fourth, he's on the second, so on and so forth. As Roberto is on the 17th hole, he has a one-stroke lead on Bob Golby. Gets on the green, he's feeling good, there's a birdie putt opportunity, and then he hears the crowd is absolutely roaring, because the way that Masters is set up, the 15th hole runs parallel to the 17th hole, so he hears the crowd go absolutely apeshit. And he knows that this can only mean one thing. It means that Bob Golby has reached the green in two. He's going to have a putt for eagle. So being only one stroke up, Roberto now knows the pressure's on. And he is notorious for leaving his putt short. Very bravely, he steps up, he drains his birdie putt. As he's walking to 18, he hears another roar. He knows that this means that Bob Golby has sunk his eagle putt. He knows that this means they are now tied at 12 strokes under par. Steps up to 18, he shanks his drive. He's able to recover somewhat decently, he reaches the green in three, but he two putts. He's bogeyed. He's now one stroke behind, and he enters the clubhouse with a final score of 11 strokes under par. So now he has the weight. He's in the clubhouse, and it, it's a matter of formality, but you need to sign your scorecard. And the, the, the partner that you play with will also keep your score as a way of double-checking make sure that everybody's being honest. And you have to sign both scorecards. So the press secretary comes up and is like, hey, Roberto, like, you know, we got to get you to talk to the press. And like, you know, he has a lot of things going on. He wants to, he wants to see how Bob Golby ends up and did I just lose the Masters? But he's like, all right, fine. So he signs it real quick, goes, goes to do his interviews. Bob Golby, on the same 17 that Roberto got his birdie, he three putts. So he bogeys. So now they're both tied at 11 under. Now the pressure's on Golby. Golby needs to par 18, or he's going to drop to 10 under, and Roberto's going to walk away with the win. Plays 18, very nice and safe. Gets on in two. Two putts his way. We're both tied at 11 under. And this should trigger, and I emphasize the word should, an 18-hole playoff. However, let me remind you, the theme of this episode is technicalities. And you are about to learn of the most horrific technicality in the history of sports. Roberto DiVincenzo's playing partner that day, on the 17 on which Roberto birdied for a three, his playing partner marked Roberto down for a four. Roberto's own scorecard that he was keeping for himself did have the correct three, but his playing partner had the four. The rules are very clear here on discrepancies. If a player gives himself an inaccurately low mark, he is automatically disqualified. No prize money. You don't finish anything. If you accurately record your own score, but you sign off on the scorecard, which your playing partner had incorrectly scored, a higher score is the one that officially counts. So the big birdie that Roberto sunk on 17, because he signed the scorecard, is a par. And Roberto DiVincenzo officially finishes 10 under par, one stroke behind Bob Golby. Bob Golby wins the 1968 Masters. Oh, that's awful. You know, how, how would you react if you were in these circumstances? I personally would be absolutely irate. I would be furious. I would be screaming at the person that runs the golf tournament. I would be screaming at my playing partner who fucked up my scorecard. I would be screaming at everybody. This is not the kind of guy that Roberto DiVincenzo is. This is a direct quote from him. I want to congratulate Bob. He plays so good. Maybe he gave me so much pressure that I lose my brain. This is my fault. Nobody else's. I've played golf for many, many years. I've signed many cards and none of them wrong. 
All I can say is what a stupid I am to be wrong in this wonderful tournament. That's a really good quote. That's a pretty peaceful response. And he also, he apologized to the, the director of the tournament. He apologized to his playing partner who signed the wrong score. He said, hey, I should have caught that and corrected you. Because he doesn't want anybody to be blaming his playing partner sure. for the fact that he lost in this technicality. Unfortunately, this is the closest that Roberto Di Vincenzo gets to another major championship. The only major that he ends up winning is that 1967 British Open. But he continues to play for about 20 more years. And significantly, the, uh, the PGA Senior Tour began in the 1980s. In 1980, they had the first ever PGA Senior Open. And Roberto Di Vincenzo is the inaugural champion of the PGA Senior Open. Hell yeah. The first one ever in 1980. Just one other quote about this Masters, and this is years after the fact. Unfortunately, Roberto Di Vincenzo is no longer with us. Um, he did pass oh. uh, in, in the early 2000s. He did live to the age of 94, so lived a very long, full, happy, successful life. And as clearly evidenced by the incredibly graceful quote that he gave immediately after the, the Masters mishap. Just a guy with incredible perspective. And even all these years later... After the Masters, he says this again, a direct quote. All that I lost at the Masters was the jacket. Prestige? No. It's many years in the past, and yet we're still talking about those Masters. My name is in the Masters forever. Just in reading about this guy, the, the reverence that the entire golf community has for him, the reverence that Argentina has for him, he's considered one of the all-time great sports icons in Argentina. Like, I read a thing that was like, look, they revere Maradona, they revere Manu, and they revere Luis, Roberto. He beats Luis Scola? He beats <laughs> handsome Luis Scola? I'm, I'm, I'm giving one per sport. I'm giving one per okay, sport. Maybe, okay. Maybe yeah. Luis Scola ranks ahead, but... Pepe Sanchez. That's the Pepe Sanchez. Also, wait, uh, Messi? You go Maradona. You go <laughs> Manu. You go Roberto DiVincenzo. Um, okay. Maradona but, is more loved than Messi, I can say that. That I can definitely believe. But an, an incredibly graceful response to incredibly bullshit circumstances really because everybody every person at that tournament knew that he scored a minus 11 everybody knew but because of this technical ass rule that says if your playing partner fucks up and you don't correct him then that's what counts you know he ends up missing out on the green jacket by one stroke but to, to just be so incredibly graceful in that unfortunate moment really stood out to me just you know mo mo most respect to roberto di vincenzo which I said at the top, I'll say it again, the greatest golfer you've never heard of. I hope, I hope that this has been enlightening, and I hope that we can honor Roberto for, for the great guy that he is. Here's the thing about judging the greatest golf that you never heard of. He certainly seems to fit that qualification, but to be fair, I don't know of many golfers. <laughs> there right. is like, an I, infinite number Ronald of Palmer? golfers that I am not currently aware of. <laughs> That's that's totally fair. That's totally fair. But but he certainly ranks highly. Those career numbers, again, I don't necessarily have the greatest sense of scale. Those sound like very good career numbers. They're, they're incredible. And I, I, what I will say, seven PGA <laughs> Tour victories, but still, 231 professional victories. Seven and PGA Tour victories is a lot especially of Especially if you're not American, because especially in the 60s, 70s, PGA Tour was still mostly Americans and white Europeans at that time. Well, and that's one of the things that he, he spoke about as well, because he said, look, I could have made a lot more money if I wanted to, to be there full time. But no, it was, it was important to him 
specifically to come back to Argentina, to come back to the golf club that he began at as a caddy to give lessons and teach to the young up-and-comers. So, like, and, and, like, you know, Argentina still produces some very good golfers. So, like, Angel Cabrera, for example, is is a guy that is a very good golfer. Older these days, his, his prime is past him, but Angel Cabrera always refers to what, what an incredible influence Roberto Di Vincenzo was. And to the extent that he literally opened doors, like, there would be Argentinian golfers that would come to America and, you know, they would meet somebody and they'd say, like, oh, you know, so where are you up here from? Like, oh, you know, I'm from Argentina. And, like, people would automatically, Roberto, oh, my goodness, come in, please sit down, let's have a meal. Quite literally opening doors for, for, for the future of Argentina golf. So, I, it, for me, it was a lot of fun to, to learn about him because I'm, I would say I'm in the, one of the upper percentiles of golf watchers. Yeah. People who pay attention to golf. But I, I had never heard this story. And it, it just the oddity of it, but then also the grace with which he accepted it, I think is just really remarkable. Excellent storytelling, uh, both of you today. Absolutely phenomenal. So we'll see, I guess now, as we come to our final decision, who wins out. And, and I'll lead off by playing a little bit devil's advocate against myself. Because we have discussed the idea of minimums before. And, and I'll acknowledge... Eddie Geidel is a pretty short-lived career as a professional athlete. The reason I'm bringing this up is I think that's the biggest knock against Eddie Geidel. I think otherwise it's, it's beautiful. Uh, he's got the aspect of creating a rule. And I also just have always enjoyed the fact that it's the only uniform number that's not an integer because I'm a big nerd. <laughs> but I'll admit, if we're talking about there being some kind of minimum requirements for a career length, yeah, no, that's that's definitely going to be some trouble for our guy, Eddie. The Eddie Guidel is good. The only issue I had with that was that half the story felt like a Bill Veck story and that it could have easily been about Bill Veck instead of Eddie Guidel. And to play devil's advocate against myself... I also was more focused on the ruling that came from Trent Tucker than Trent Tucker itself. The only person really focused on one guy in a technicality surrounding that one guy with no other main characters, I think is probably Roberto DiVincenzo. Yeah, I mean, I look, I I usually try to defer and to, to hype up one of the guys that either of you has presented, but I got to toot my own oar here. I think I knocked it out of the fucking park with the bird. Absurd. This is ridiculous. I, I I just think he has to go in. Like I'm I'm not gonna state further because I think I just stated my whole case. But this is a guy. This is listen. There's there's guy Dell and then there's guy. For the records, I'm gonna leave this one as a not unanimous one. I'm gonna leave my vote in for Eddie Guy Dell, but I'm gonna happily defer to the wisdom of the crowd uh, on your two. I'm not gonna fight that any further. I think it's it's great for Eddie Guy Dell to come in second to our new inductee. Do you want to do the honors, Diaz? Welcome to the man that may not have a green jacket, but does have a firm place in all of our hearts. We will not cry for him because the truth is, Roberto DiVincenzo is a member of the Hall of Guy. Absolutely excellent of you to pull there. Appreciated that. Of course, of course. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll need some time to think of the topic for next week. I haven't had to think of a topic for us in a bit, but this was this was a fun one. I I always, you know, one of my favorite Futurama episodes is you are technically correct. The best, the best kind, kind of correct. correct. Unfortunately, in Roberto's case, he was technically incorrect. But nonetheless, as he so eloquently put it himself, is forever etched into the history of the Masters now. 
probably more so than if he had gone on to win a playoff. He cer- certainly would not have been mentioned in, in this discussion. So congratulations, Roberto. And that's about all I think we've got here for planned programming. You guys got any last parting remarks as we head on out here? Nothing for me. All I will say is, so this is something I thought about a little bit. The NFL Pro Bowl needs to go. We need to just replace it with a fun skill competition because none of this top stars actually go. Let's just do some crazy shit. They, 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 they did this before. Do you remember in like the late nineties? Mm-hmm. have like the, the big oh, arm contest, uh, the video yeah. of that one around the other day. And I was like, Oh, right. Jim Harbaugh was the Ravens quarterback participating in that. Like the moving target that you got to throw and hit and like give them a fucking obstacle course to run. Like let's have fun with it. Right. You think of something fun where guys aren't going to get injured and will actually participate. I mean, you're going to get better viewership numbers. I'm sure the Pro Bowl viewership has been shit for fucking years. I never watch it, but I would watch it. Like, if they had all of them go through, like, the American Ninja Warrior course, I would watch that all day. Do you know how, uh, like, it's very easy to to show that people don't care about the Pro Bowl? The skills competition was yesterday. They did that. It happened yesterday, and nobody knew about it because nobody cares. Well, hey. Don't watch the Pro Bowl this week. Do something better with your life. What you can do uh, is go ahead and, and look forward to listening to us this week, since apparently you think this is a good thing to do with your life, and we appreciate that. We hope you will join us again next week. I have once again been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. I'm Diaz, your other co-host, and as Jack Buck once said, we'll see you tomorrow, guys. Good thing.